Past Dark is intended for adults only. Listener discretion is advised. This is part two of a two-part series. And the sessions began as almost catch-ups, chats between old friends. Shirley spoke of her time in Colorado, of her mother's death, and Cornelia talked about her work with veterans, mentioning her connections should Shirley want to continue working in art therapy. Shirley divulged her dream of becoming a psychotherapist, which Dr. Wilbur encouraged. She spoke of her loneliness, her fantasies, her exhaustion. She wrote of her talks with Dr. Wilbur in letters to her father, mentioning that her doctor was, quote, doing some kind of research in the use of certain drugs and their effects on certain types of mental illness. And shortly, the subject of that research would be Shirley herself. Early on, unpacking the years and opening up to Connie must have been cathartic. But the catharsis soon sank under increasing anxiety. Dr. Wilbur might not be there forever. She'd left before. Shirley wasn't happy in school, was lonely at home, and growing more exhausted. And the more exhausted she became, the more dependent she became, and the more nervous. Shirley seemed to be disintegrating. Dr. Wilbur must have been aware that she was in no way able to pay for long-term private care, so perhaps her public hospital training overrode a more managed, long-term approach. Perhaps it was an experiment. For whatever reason, Dr. Wilbur prescribed two medications to Shirley immediately, medications that were addictive and yet expedient. There was secanol, a barbiturate for sleep, which upon withdrawal can cause hallucinations and vivid dreams. There was Demerol, for her now suddenly re-emergent menstrual cramps, a narcotic related to heroin, which caused blackouts and confusion. These drugs cured her insomnia, but robbed her of a life outside of her studies. By her second semester, she was either in school, in therapy with Dr. Wilbur, or asleep, whether twilight or real. That line between the real and unreal would blur just a few months after resuming therapy, when Shirley mentions offhandedly to Dr. Wilbur that sometimes she would get lost. She would forget where she was, where she was heading, or how she got there. Sometimes she found herself in shops with broken merchandise all around her, for which she would shamefully pay and hurriedly depart. Sometimes she would even awaken in a strange hotel, in, for instance, Philadelphia, with no memory of having traveled there. Connie is surprised, even intrigued. Shirley had never before mentioned fugue states, a rare feature of hysteria. It certainly accorded with her past history. But that paled in comparison to what happened next. Early in 1955, Shirley arrived for her appointment dressed unusually. She was usually given to coordinated pantsuits, but today, 
She looked almost childish in a skirt and blouse. Dr. Wilbur began the session by asking her how she was doing. Shirley responded, I'm fine, but Shirley isn't. So I decided to come today. She said her name was Peggy, and she talked, nonstop, for the rest of the hour. She then left hurriedly. Her next appointment, Shirley was full of apology for missing the previous one. Dr. Wilbur did not prevaricate. She told her plainly that she had, in fact, shown up, but as someone else entirely. Shirley displayed no curiosity about this, and, in fact, changed the subject. But next week, it was yet another personality at the helm, this one named Vicky, short for Victoria Antoinette Charlot. Cornelia would have no way of knowing that Shirley had had a number of imaginary friends as a child, and that one was named Vicky. Before things got even more wildly complex than they were now, Dr. Wilbur asked for a sort of roll call from Vicky, who mentioned that there were, in fact, two Peggies, Peggy Ann and Peggy Lou. This sudden profusion of personalities at a number rivaling even those known in the case studies, left Connie somewhat shocked, but at no time did she demonstrate any doubt as to their reality. And in fact, this is one of the most troubling aspects of her entire therapeutic relationship with Shirley, and it bears underlining here. She displays a credulity throughout that belies her claim of being a pure scientist, Accepting what a patient tells you wholesale is not necessarily therapeutic. But certainly Dr. Wilbur was, in her own way, as easily seduced as her patients by multiple personalities. She had heard stories, read the books, had even been privy to her former mentor's work with an MPD, but she had never encountered one of her own. And perhaps... It wasn't only Dr. Wilbur who was indulging herself. She had recommended Morton Prince's book on the subject to Shirley during their first meetings, and so Shirley must have known how to present in a way that would appear genuine in a clinical setting. She must also have sensed the doctor's interest in the subject, and to be interesting to Dr. Wilbur must have been wonderful to Shirley. A patient with MPD was like a unicorn, rare, fascinating, almost mythical. It was so unusual that it was worth it to put Shirley's fees on hold for the sake of research. So Dr. Wilbur decided to undertake Shirley's analysis as a project, deciding early on that each separate personality would need its own separate analysis. And she thought, true to her trauma-based origin story of hysteria, that whatever had happened to Shirley must have been far beyond the usual growing pains and ordinary parental dysfunction. Dr. Wilbur would have to dig deep to unearth the trauma that had so fractured her. Understandably, Connie stepped lightly when telling Shirley of her diagnosis, and she did so gravely, wanting to make sure that she absorbed the news this time and didn't shunt it all aside. And she didn't. She listened. In fact, this time, she was curious. She decided to reread Prince's book once again, and when she showed up for her next appointment, 
It was as yet another personality. And this highly suggestible woman continued to sprout other personalities in the weeks and years to come. There was Mike, a boy who loved to build things. Later, there was Shirley Ann, Clara, Marina, and so on. Once the diagnosis was in place, Dr. Wilbur finally convinced Shirley to undergo pentothal injections, after which Dr. Wilbur would begin questioning her, probing, trying to unearth the memories she felt sure were buried there, erupting into these altars, and she would record all of it on a reel-to-reel. These tapes were destroyed upon Dr. Wilbur's death, but some transcripts survive, and what they reveal would not have been surprising to a military psychiatrist interviewing a soldier in a twilight sleep. Vague, dreamlike memories without concrete details, veritable torrents of thought, even outright lies. In one transcript, Shirley as Peggy relates a memory from the age of seven, in which she claims to have witnessed the accidental shooting of a classmate named John Greenwald. A later search of the records confirmed the death of John Greenwald, but Shirley was 17, not seven, and was not even in the same town when it happened. Shirley was writing her trauma like a novel as she went along, with Dr. Wilbur as editor. Actual events, such as a tonsillectomy, would lead Dr. Wilbur to believe that Shirley had been sexually molested, as her memories of being held down and violated were easy to misinterpret. And after these sessions, Shirley was often rattled, angry, would sometimes even hide under the table. Dr. Wilbur battled on, making house calls, even giving Shirley massive pentothal injections right in her bedroom so Shirley could fall asleep safe at home afterwards. Dr. Wilbur was digging for gold, and she wasn't going to let up. Meanwhile, Shirley was becoming completely emotionally dependent on Connie, mentioning in her diary any time she complimented her or hugged her. Connie began displaying Shirley's paintings in her apartment, even selling one to a friend. Shirley was deeply thankful, so much so, that she arrived at her next session as yet another personality, this one called Helen. It was now 1956, and Shirley was not getting better. Her schoolwork suffered. She was disappearing more often, lacking out only to find herself hundreds of miles away. There was none of the breezy expectation of a quick resolution. Shirley was doing worse than ever. And the veritable medicine cabinet she was now regularly prescribed might have had some bearing on this. She was not only receiving massive injections of addictive barbiturates on a regular basis, but also sleeping pills, as well as Dexanil, a combination of amphetamine and barbiturates. Connie also prescribed Equinil, a tranquilizer popularly known as Milltown. And at times, when Connie felt it necessary, she doubled, even quadrupled the doses of these as well as the Secanol and Demerol 
truly was already taking. That wasn't all. She prescribed Sir Patlin, a combination of a tranquilizer and a psychomotor stimulant, Ritalin, advertised as a stabilizer for the up-and-down patient. Then more barbiturates in the form of phenobarbital. On top of all of this, she was also given Thorazine, a notoriously potent antipsychotic that caused terrible side effects, such as blackouts. Even by 1950s psychiatric standards, this was, to put it mildly, over-medicating, and doing so with drugs already known to have catastrophic side effects, even in regular doses. Within two years of beginning therapy, Shirley was now hooked on barbiturates and receiving pentothal injections far above the normal dose, daily. Shirley was even subjected to a little homebound ECT. Dr. Wilbur had held on to an old machine, the size of a suitcase, circa 1940s. Whenever she felt the drugs and endless retelling of trauma were weighing too heavily on Shirley, she would get out the paddles and plug in the machine, shocking her into calmness. Even Shirley was beginning to question these methods, these endless medications and house calls and injections leading only to more despair. Her complaints fell on deaf ears, with Dr. Wilbur taking it as a sign that, paradoxically, the methods were working, like an exorcist battling a demon who fights hardest just before the final defeat. And, of course... There was her research. Shirley was her project, and she would invest years in this dismantling and reintegration. Eleven years total. The idea of compensation for her efforts would first be put to Shirley around 1956. Knowing Shirley would probably never be able to pay her, even if she were capable of working full-time, she begins thinking about a way to turn all of their shared experience, their pain, and Dr. Wilbur's brilliant analysis into a moneymaker. She asks Shirley, Would you like to make some money? Dr. Wilbur explains that she would like to collaborate with Shirley on a book about her disorder. In exchange for her participation, Dr. Wilbur would pay for Shirley's medical school tuition, as well as all of her living expenses. Shirley could fulfill her dream of becoming a trained psychoanalyst after battling a debilitating mental illness, an illness miraculously healed by the diligent efforts of the heroic Cornelia Wilbur. The obvious problem with this was that it was clearly fiction. Shirley was not miraculously healed. She wasn't even as well as she had been when she first began seeing Dr. Wilbur in New York City. Worse, despite every effort... Shirley had yet to unearth anything truly traumatic to Connie. Certainly Dr. Wilbur had already extrapolated abuse from vague utterances muttered in a barbiturate haze, but there was not the recall that Shirley demonstrated when recounting, for instance, the accidental shooting. Without the trauma, the framework of her argument fell down. So, Dr. Wilbur kept going, intent on proving her own ideas, no matter what the cost.
surely may have been lost in a fog, but she was by no means completely oblivious. She knew that she had become addicted to barbiturates, that she was unwell and not getting better. Something inside of her decided to break the cycle. In May of 1958, she visits Connie, bringing with her a typewritten letter. What she says is devastating. I am not going to tell you that there isn't anything wrong. We both know that there is. But it is not what I've led you to believe. I am none of the things that I pretend to be. I do not have multiple personalities. I do not even have a double. I am all of them and have been lying in my pretense of them. I get the urge to do some fool thing. It was quite thrilling. Got me a lot of attention. But, she says, the charade was making her feel far worse. And she knew she did have a genuine mental illness, just not the one that Dr. Wilbur diagnosed. She wanted Connie to help her find the real problem underneath the lies. It was brave, and ultimately pointless. Dr. Wilbur scoffed at the letter, painting Shirley's denials as a mere defense maneuver. Quite expected, she explained, when doing such deep dives into Shirley's unconscious. So convinced she was of her own diagnosis that she refused to treat Shirley further if she persisted in her denials. And she hinted strongly. She could no longer associate with her even as a friend. Shirley returns home and writes another letter, walking it all back, blaming it all on one of her other personalities and flattering Dr. Wilbur by saying, you knew all along. By now, Shirley had resisted as much as could be expected of her, all while suffering blackouts, addiction to barbiturates, over-medicating with powerful psychoactive drugs, and ECT administered by someone she loved deeply and trusted completely. She had few, if any, friends, no family nearby, working and attending school only sporadically. She was essentially cornered. and it's here that Shirley finally gave it up to Dr. Wilbur. The girl, prone to fantasy, became the woman, lost in her own imaginings. Her memories became garish, almost gothic. Despite no medical or anecdotal history of abuse or strange goings-on in the Mason home, nor even any rumors of such amongst the townspeople, Shirley told outlandish tales of her mother's nighttime adventures in Dodge Center, including defecating on the neighbors' lawns and having orgies with teenage girls in the woods outside of town. Maddie would sometimes hang her upside down for hours in the barn. She smothered her in a loft, threatened to chop her hands off in the meat grinder, raped her with button hooks, and on and on. The stories evolved upon the retelling, growing ever more grotesque. The darker the trauma, the more valuable the remembrance. This was what needed to happen to get well, she was told. 
Now that she had fully expressed the trauma, the personalities could be knitted back together and integrated fully into one person. Dr. Wilbur eventually had to press upon Shirley that, in short, she had to get better. The power of suggestion worked. The integration occurred on September the 1st, 1965, ostensibly putting a tidy end to Shirley's illness, with Connie writing in her notes, all personalities won. She was already shaping the narrative for what was to come. And it is no surprise that, having been treated for addiction and been weaned off most of the drugs that had overpowered her for years, Shirley did seem to be genuinely better. She moved to a small apartment quite close to Dr. Wilbur, who paid the deposit and helped her with furnishings. She got a job as a desk clerk, even dated for a while. Meanwhile, Connie had already begun discussions with Flora Schreiber, an author with whom she had previously collaborated on an article based on Dr. Wilbur's research into homosexuality. For Connie, in addition to falling prey to many of psychiatry's worst ideas, was an early believer in the idea of conversion therapy, believing homosexuality was itself an illness. Schreiber contacted the doctor for a case study to base an article on. Dr. Wilbur agreed, later commenting that she had, quote, gotten things right in the article, which was finally published in Cosmopolitan. She hoped this time she would get it right again. But Flora was not going to have an easy time with this story, which was titled, Who is Sylvia? And then, Sylvia, the many multiples of one. But these multiples were hardly the full-fleshed personalities she was expecting to encounter, but were instead mere sketches with vague details attached. She needed more, and asked Shirley and Connie to draft a list of the hairdos and favorites of all 16 personalities. Connie also gave her the tapes from Shirley's sessions, which were numerous and packed to the brim with rambling horrors and incoherent screams, interspersed with Dr. Wilbur's exhortations. During one session, Shirley is in the midst of yet another story of trauma at the hands of her mother when Connie interjects, Do you know something, sweetie? I am stronger than mother. These grotesque tales of abuse would be a large part of the book's appeal to a mass audience, Flora realized. Battered child syndrome was just then, in the late 60s, becoming a known phenomenon with the publication of the bestseller, The Throwaway Children, and Schreiber knew that the most lurid claims could escape censure if the context was noble enough. Flora would naturally need all of the documentation she could get to draw together a book-length narrative, but from the beginning, the pieces weren't adding up. Debbie Nathan, author of Sybil Exposed, one of the source materials for this episode, was able to access Flora Schreiber's Sybil archives after her death. What she found there was shocking. Shirley had passed on a number of her journals to Schreiber, journals which she claimed supported her diagnosis of multiple personalities. 
They were the expected teenage banalities, and they were completely absent of any mention of abuse. And a telling detail was her claim in one entry, from a diary supposedly written in 1941, to be then reading a book that wasn't published until 1943. And in the 90s, while Debbie Nathan was researching her book, she had the diaries examined by forensics experts. Shirley had used a ballpoint pen in the 1941 diary, but the ballpoint was not available in America until 1945. They were fakes. Flora couldn't have known this, but she had from the beginning wondered if the stories of abuse were genuine, and upon reading the diary she again questioned their veracity. But Dr. Wilbur merely scoffed at her doubts, writing in a letter. You are being naive about this. You can't imagine what an intelligent, intellectual, talented, sadistic schizophrenic might dream up to torture her daughter, she told her. Dr. Wilbur was right. Flora couldn't imagine. So she decided to find out for herself, traveling to Minnesota and Dodge Center to find the answer she wasn't getting from Dr. Wilbur or Shirley. Far from putting an end to her skepticism, it would disturb her all the more. Flora knew that in a town as small as Dodge Center, something as bizarre as a nighttime toilet caper would certainly have been remembered, never mind orgies in the woods. But no one remembered a thing. The only oddity noted was Maddie's taking over her husband's job at the hardware store, a singularly unfeminine move. And that was it. The fact that something so ordinary persisted in the memory of the townspeople made it impossible to suppose that any whiff of a greater scandal would have been forgotten or even suppressed. But the family was remembered as kind and decent people whose daughter was just a little nervous from time to time. And as for orgies in the woods, there weren't any woods, only prairie. Shirley wasn't helping her own cause either. Shortly after Flora first met her, she brought her another memory, a brand new, bizarre cloak and dagger fable where she was taken from the streets of Dodge Center and spirited away to Holland, where she spent four days for some sort of inexplicable mission in 1942. It was plainly absurd, and Flora's friends warned her that accepting this tale as even remotely true was madness. Holland was occupied by the Nazis in 1942, and a domestic flight from Minnesota into Nazi territory while in the middle of a world war was beyond improbable. It was impossible. Then there were the medical records which Dr. Wilbur had, for some reason, exhibited no curiosity about, and had not consulted herself to prove or disprove any of the injuries Shirley claimed to have suffered during her abuse. Flora had Dr. Wilbur obtain them, and here too was a total lack of substantiation for Shirley's claims, and yet another example of Dr. Wilbur's glaring credulity. Flora even examined Maddie's medical records, 
and found a diagnosis not of schizophrenia, which Dr. Wilbur harped on endlessly, but depression. Shirley had claimed to have been hospitalized at the age of three for malnutrition due to Maddie's abuse, but in the records, it showed Shirley received a tonsillectomy at that time, and her weight was noted as normal. But what finally brought an end to any doubt that she was courting fiction was the discovery of Shirley's confession to Dr. Wilbur, in which she disavowed her own diagnosis. Dr. Wilbur coached Flora into believing that it was simply an expected bit of sabotage on the part of the multiples, and the doctor noted testily this was wasting her time, and maybe she ought to get another writer. But Flora was already committed. She'd already signed a contract by this time with a publisher, and had even taken a hefty advance. She had to do it. If it were fictionalized a bit, that was to be expected. She would, after all, have to change names and places to protect their anonymity. Liberties would have to be taken. She was over a barrel, so she wrote it all the way down. Sybil, the true story of a woman possessed by 16 personalities, would be published in 1973 and go on to sell 7 million copies worldwide. While it was panned by many critics, the public devoured it. Dr. Wilbur and Flora Schreiber became famous, appearing together on The Dick Cabot Show. Shirley used her portion of the book's profits to pay off her debt to Dr. Wilbur and buy a small house in Ohio, working as an art professor at a small college. She chose to remain anonymous, though it wouldn't last. Dr. Wilbur reveled in her new fame. She continued to work as a professor and psychotherapist, becoming a popular yet controversial professor at the University of Kentucky where she demonstrated to her students how to test for multiple personality disorder. Her directions were to hypnotize the patient, then have them stare into a mirror until another person appears. When this occurs, the patient is then instructed to ask the name and age of the phantom. If they responded, they had multiple personality disorder. Studies have since shown that anyone will encounter another person in a mirror should they stare long enough. Naturally, MPD made its debut in Lexington shortly after Dr. Wilbur's arrival, and she would go on to diagnose dozens of new multiples. She cultivated a group of younger residents who considered her their mentor, an informal group known as Connie's Children. Roughly half of them would later be accused of sexual impropriety with patients. Her star continued to rise after she retired from her post at the university. She started her own clinic specializing in multiple personality disorder, this suddenly not-so-rare condition that Connie was now the unquestionable expert in. But her eager young staff became profoundly disillusioned after Dr. Wilbur's methods collapsed under scrutiny, and many simply quit. The clinic closed in 1980, just in time for the beginning of the Satanic Panic. Dr. 
Dr. Wilbur wholeheartedly climbed up on the bandwagon, appearing on talk shows and lecturing in support of such thoroughly debunked accounts as Michelle Remembers, the supposed autobiography of Michelle Smith, who unearthed memories of satanic ritual abuse and the wholesale murder of children while under hypnosis, guided by her therapist, who later became her husband. Dr. Wilbur said of the book, I don't think we can possibly deny the truth. She would be recognized by the American Psychological Association as a distinguished psychiatrist and be hailed as a maverick who launched a revolution. But there were detractors. Dr. Herbert Spiegel, a colleague of Dr. Wilbur's, had in 1959 seen Shirley at the request of her doctor. Connie wanted Dr. Spiegel to assess Shirley's level of hypnotizability. He had called her, quote, highly suggestible, a virtuoso, in fact, and that to encourage Shirley in her multiplicity could be damaging. Dr. Wilbur ignored this, and Dr. Spiegel would later on mention that in his meeting with Shirley, she had asked him if he needed her to demonstrate her personalities, as if she were performing a party trick. Spiegel came away convinced that Dr. Wilbur had implanted the idea upon Shirley, and that she was not a genuine multiple. In fact, the whole idea of multiple personality disorder, which is now known as dissociative identity disorder, has lost favor with many in the psychiatric community. Dr. Alan Francis, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University and Chairman for the DSM Task Force, which oversees amendments to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, said that of the hundreds of patients he encountered who claimed to have multiple personalities, none had a spontaneous onset. All were aided and abetted by a therapist or psychiatrist who used suggestion, hypnosis, and sometimes outright intimidation to achieve this multiplicity. One psychiatrist was known to question patients for up to eight hours until they finally admitted to having multiples, and upon doing so, the patient was roundly praised, just as Connie had done with Shirley. Her treatment certainly crossed a number of boundaries, some understandable, some purely invasive. Helping Shirley with money, jobs, or selling paintings for her would certainly be considered a bad idea amongst therapists today. But others, house calls during which she performed ECT or subjected Shirley to massive injections, would today be called criminal. These ethical questions are echoed in the controversy that still surrounds the diagnosis of MPD, today known as Dissociative Identity Disorder, in large part due to two aspects upon which a diagnosis is based, dissociative amnesia and recovered memories. The latter especially has proven to be almost entirely undependable in a legal or therapeutic context, echoing the military's experience with so-called twilight sleep and hypnosis, and their tendency to produce fantasies and lies. The destructive path wrought by these recovered memories is evidenced in the hundreds of arrests and countless trials in the 1980s, 
with the clarion call of, I believe the children as their rallying cry. Children, it was constantly said, could not possibly lie about such things, even though many of their claims, including being flown to foreign countries and returned within hours of daytime orgies at the local car wash, even the presence of Chuck Norris, more ridiculous or impossible. Basing a diagnosis on such undependable methods can be a slippery slope. It may be the case that, just as it happened with hysteria, dissociative identity disorder may be reconsidered or even struck from the DSM altogether. Dissociative states and trauma are undoubtedly real, and guarding against manipulative therapeutic techniques no matter what the diagnosis is of prime importance. Theater only prevents the real problem from being treated. And there is strong evidence that what Shirley suffered from was not mental illness at all. Dr. Wilbur would admit as much years later. When questioned during a lecture about Shirley's current state, she said, She has lived a long time without much energy, and also suffered from pernicious anemia. That this pure scientist never pursued this line of treatment is mind-boggling. Symptoms of pernicious anemia, which include headaches, insomnia, tingling and numbness in the limbs, social withdrawal, blackouts, severe weight loss, loss of coordination, and lastly, a confusion about identity, read as a mirror image of the problems which plagued Shirley throughout her life. That many of these symptoms disappeared after her ovarian surgery, which at least temporarily ended her menstrual difficulties, is also telling. Her own mother was diagnosed with anemia on at least one occasion, and when Shirley was diagnosed and treated for anemia, her symptoms once again disappeared. And there is something else that makes it quite likely that anemia was the central issue. The Masons were as were most Seventh-day Adventists, vegetarians. In fact, many of the first vegetarian foods available, peanut butter, soy milk, or cornflakes, as well as many vegetarian food manufacturers still around today, like Morningstar Farms, have an Adventist origin. In a time when nutritional needs were not as well understood as they are today, the lack of iron in B12 in the typical vegetarian diet of the time could easily have been the main contributor to Shirley's physical and mental breakdowns. It is absolutely possible to live healthfully as a vegetarian or a vegan, but in some cases, extra supplements may be required. Shirley would always, without fail, experience a profound improvement after receiving treatment for anemia. That Dr. Wilbur did not consider this kind of treatment, even as a helpful addition to therapy, only underscores the many flaws of both her character and her practice. That she persisted despite her own patients' misgivings, her professional colleagues' doubts and all of the evidence, is extraordinary, and is perhaps the ultimate cautionary tale for the dangers of psychiatric hubris. As for Shirley's life, she continued teaching and painting, moving to Lexington quite near Dr. Wilbur. The two remained friends and spent much of their remaining years either in close contact or living near one another. 
Shirley developed breast cancer in 1990, but went into remission without treatment. Connie had a stroke in the early 90s, and Shirley took care of her until the end of her life. Cornelia Wilbur passed away from a fatal heart attack in April of 1992, with her papers destroyed by her own request. Shirley's breast cancer returned, and she died February the 26th, 1998. A trove of paintings from her time in therapy were discovered after her death, known as the Hidden Paintings, and have been exhibited in galleries and museums. Her talent is obvious, and one can't help wonder what else she may have been able to accomplish without the interference of Dr. Wilbur. And from the end of her therapy until her death, she never again exhibited any signs of multiple personalities. Stark is written and produced by Carmen Park. Original music by Skillpack.